following is a conversation with Steven Schwartzman, CEO and co-founder of Blackstone, one of the world's leading investment firms with over $530 billion of assets under management. He's one of the most successful business leaders in history. I recommend his recent book called What It Takes that tells stories and lessons from his personal journey. Steven is a philanthropist and one of the wealthiest people in the world, recently signing the Giving Pledge, thereby committing to give the majority of his wealth to philanthropic causes. As an example, in 2018, he donated $350 million to MIT to help establish its new College of Computing, the mission of which promotes interdisciplinary, big, bold research in artificial intelligence. For those of you who know me, know that MIT is near and dear to my heart and always will be. It was and is a place where I believe big, bold, revolutionary ideas have a home. And that is what is needed in artificial intelligence research in the coming decades. Yes, there's institutional challenges, but also there's power in the passion of individual researchers, from undergrad to PhD, from young scientists to senior faculty. I believe the dream to build intelligence systems burns brighter than ever in the halls of MIT. This conversation was recorded recently, but before the outbreak of the pandemic. For everyone feeling the burden of this crisis, I'm sending love your way. Stay strong, we're in this together. This is the Artificial Intelligence Podcast. If you enjoy it, subscribe on YouTube, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, support it on Patreon, or simply connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman spelled F-R-I-D-M-A-N. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now and never any ads in the middle that can break the flow of the conversation. I hope that works for you and doesn't hurt the listening experience. Quick summary of the ads. Two sponsors, Masterclass and ExpressVPN. Please consider supporting the podcast by signing up to Masterclass at masterclass.com slash Lex and getting ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash LexPod. This show is sponsored by Masterclass. Sign up at masterclass.com slash Lex to get a discount and support this podcast. When I first heard about Masterclass, I thought it was too good to be true. For $180 a year, you get an all-access pass to watch courses from, to list some of my favorites, Chris Hadfield on space exploration, Neil deGrasse Tyson on scientific thinking and communication, Will Wright, creator of SimCity and Sims on game design, Carlos Santana on guitar, Gary Kasparov on chess, Daniel Negrano on poker, and many, many more. Chris Hatfield explaining how rockets work and the experience of being launched into space alone is worth the money. By the way, you can watch it on basically any device. Once again, sign up at masterclass.com slash Lex to get a discount and to support this podcast. This show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Get it at expressvpn.com slash LexPod to get a discount and to support this podcast. I've been using ExpressVPN for many years. I love it. It's easy to use, press the big power on button, and your privacy is protected. And if you like, you can make it look like your location is anywhere else in the world. I might be in Boston now, but I can make it look like I'm in New York, London, Paris, or anywhere else in the world. This has a large number of obvious benefits. Certainly, it allows you to access international versions of streaming websites like the Japanese Netflix or the UK Hulu. ExpressVPN works on any device you can imagine. I use it on Linux, shout out to Ubuntu, 
2004, Windows, Android, but it's available everywhere else too. Once again, get it at expressvpn.com slash lexpod to get a discount and to support this podcast. And now here's my conversation with Steven Schwartzman. Let's start with a tough question. What idea do you believe, whether grounded in data or in intuition, that many people you respect disagree with you on? Well, there isn't all that much uh, anymore since the world's so transparent. Uh, But uh, one of the things I I believe in, uh, and put it in the the book, what it takes is is if you're gonna do something, do, do something very consequential. Uh, do something that's quite large, uh, if you can, that's unique. Uh, because if you operate in that kind of space, when you're successful, it's it's a huge impact. Uh, the prospect of success enables you uh, to recruit people uh, who want to be part of that. And, and those type of large opportunities are pretty easily described. Uh, and, and so uh, not everybody likes to operate uh, at scale, some people like to do small things because it, uh, it is is meaningful for them emotionally, uh, and and so occasionally you get a disagreement uh, on that. But those are life choices uh, rather than uh, commercial choices. That's interesting. What good and bad comes with going big? So we often in America think big is good. What's the benefit? What's the cost? in terms of just bigger than business, but life, happiness, the pursuit of happiness? Well, you do things that make you happy. It's not mandated. Uh, And everybody's different. Uh, And um, some people, um, you know, if they have talent, like playing pro football, uh, you know, other people just like throwing the ball around, uh, you know, not even being on a team. Uh, What's better? Uh, d- depends what your objectives are. Depends what your talent is. Uh, you know, d- depends. Um, you know what 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 gives you joy. So, in terms of going big, is it both for impact on the world and because you personally gives you joy? Well, it makes it easier to succeed, actually, uh, because if you catch something, for example, that's cyclical, that's that's a huge uh, opportunity. Then, then you usually can find some place within that huge opportunity where you can make it work. Uh, if, if, if you're prosecuting a, a really small thing and, and you're wrong, uh, you don't have many places to go. Uh, so, you know, I've always found that uh, the easy place to be uh, and, you know, um, the ability where you can concentrate uh, human resources, get people excited about doing like really impactful big things. Uh, and you can afford to pay them actually, because the bigger thing can generate much more in the way of, uh, uh, of, of financial resources. So, so that brings people out of talent uh, to help you. Uh, and, and so altogether, it's a virtuous circle, uh, I think. How do you know an opportunity when you see one in terms of the one you want to go big on, 
Is it intuition? Is it facts? Is it uh, back and forth deliberation with people you trust? What's the process? Is it art? Is it science? Well, it's pattern recognition. And how do you get to pattern recognition? First, you need to understand the patterns and, and the changes that are happening. And, and that's, uh, uh, that's either, uh, it's observational on some level. You, you can call it data uh, or uh, you can just call it listening to uh, unusual things that people are saying that they haven't said before. And, you know, I've always um, tried to describe this. It's like seeing a piece of white lint on a, on a black dress, but most people disregard that piece of lint. They just see the dress. I, I always see the lint. Uh, and and I'm, I'm fascinated by how did something get someplace it's not supposed to be. So it doesn't even need to be a big discrepancy, but if something shouldn't be someplace, in, 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 a, in, a, in a constellation of facts that that you know sort of made sense in a traditional way, uh, I've learned that if you focus on why some one discordant note uh, is there, that's usually a key to something important. And if you can find two of those discordant notes, that's usually a straight line to someplace. And that someplace is not where you've been. And uh, usually when you figure out that things are changing or have changed, and you describe them, which you have to be able to do because it's not uh, some odd intuition, it's just focusing on facts. It's almost like a scientific discovery, if you will. When you describe it to other people in the real world, they tend to do absolutely nothing about it. And um, that's because humans are comfortable in their own reality. And uh, if there's no particular reason at that moment to shake them out of their reality, they'll stay in it, even if they're ultimately completely wrong. And I've always been stunned that when I explain where we're going, what we're doing, and why, almost everyone just says, that's interesting and they continue doing what they're doing and and so um you know i i think it's pretty easy to do that uh you know but what you need is a huge data set so you know before ai and people's focus on data you know i've sort of been doing this mostly my whole life i'm not a scientist i'm not a, let alone a computer scientist and you know you you can just hear what people are saying when somebody says something or you observe something that simply doesn't make sense that's when you really go to work the rest of it's just processing you know on a quick tangent pattern recognition is a term often used throughout the history of ai that's the goal of artificial intelligence is pattern recognition right but there's i would say various flavors of that so usually Pattern recognition refers to the process of the, the well, you said dress and the lint on the dress. Pattern recognition is very good at identifying the dress, as uh, looking at the, the pattern that's always there, that's very common, and so on. You almost refer to a pattern that's like an, what's called outlier detection in uh, computer science, right? The, the, the rare thing, the, the small thing. Now, AI is not 
often good at that. Do you, just almost philosophically, the kind of decisions you made in your life based scientifically almost on data, do you think AI in the future will be able to do? Is it something that could be put down into code or is it still deeply human? I, it's tough for me to say since I don't have domain uh, uh, knowledge in AI to know everything that could or might occur. Uh, I, I know um, sort of in my own case that, that most people don't see any of that. Right. Uh, I, I just assumed it was motivational, uh, you know, um, but, but it, it's also sort of, uh, it's hard wiring. What, what are you wired or programmed uh, to be finding uh, or looking for? It's, it's not what happens every day. That, that's not interesting, frankly. I mean, that's what people mostly do. I do a bunch of that too, uh, because you know that's what you do in normal life. But I, I've always been completely fascinated by the stuff that doesn't fit. Or the other way of thinking about it, it's, it's determining what, what people want w without them saying it. Uh, that, that, that's a, that's a, a different kind of pattern. You, you can see everything they're doing. There's a missing piece. They don't know it's missing. You think it's missing, given the other facts you know about them, and you you deliver that, and then that becomes, you know, sort of very easy uh, to 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 sell to them. To linger on this point a little bit, you've mentioned that in your family. When you were growing up, nobody raised their voice in anger or otherwise. And you said that this allows you to learn to listen and hear some interesting things. Can you elaborate as you have been on that idea? What do you hear about the world if you listen? Well, you, you, you have to listen really intensely to understand uh, what people are saying as well as what people are intending because it's not necessarily the same thing. Uh, and um, um, people mostly give themselves away, no matter how clever they think they are, um, particularly if you have the full array of inputs. In other words, if you look at their face, you look at their eyes, which are the window on the soul, it's very difficult to, to conceal what, you, what you're thinking. Uh, you look at facial expressions and posture, you listen to their voice, which changes. Um, you, you know when it's when you're you're talking about something you're comfortable with or not. Are you speaking faster? Is the amplitude of what you're saying higher? M most people just give away what's really on their mind. Uh, you know they're 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 not that clever. They're busy spending their time thinking about what they're in the process of saying. And, and so if you just observe that, not in a hostile way, uh, but just in an evocative way and just let them talk for a while, they'll more or less tell you almost completely uh, what they're thinking, even the stuff they don't want you to know. And, and once you know that, of course, it's sort of easy to play that kind of game. Uh, because they've already told you everything you need to know. And, and, and so it's easy to get to a, 
a conclusion, if there's meant to be one, an area of common interest, since you know almost exactly what's on their mind. Uh, and, and so that's an enormous advantage, as opposed to just walking in and someplace and, and somebody telling you something and you believing what they're saying. Um, there, there are so many different levels of communication. So a powerful approach to life you discuss in the book on the topic of listening and really hearing people is figuring out what the biggest problem bothering a particular individual or group is and coming up with a solution to that problem and presenting them with the solution, right? In fact, you brilliantly describe a lot of simple things that most people just don't do. <laughs> it's kind of obvious. <laughs> Find the problem that's bothering somebody deeply. And as you said, I think you've implied that they will usually tell you what the problem is. But can you talk about this process of seeing what the biggest problem for a person is, trying to solve it, and um, maybe a particularly memorable example? Yeah, sure. You know, if, 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 if you know you're gonna meet somebody, there are two, two types of situations, chance meetings, and you know, the second is you know you're going to meet somebody. So let's take the easiest one, which is you know you're going to meet somebody, uh, and um, you you start trying to make pretend you're them. It's really easy. What's on their mind? Uh, what are they thinking about in their daily life? What are the big problems they're facing? So so if they're, you know, to make it a really easy uh, example. Um, you know, make pretend, you know, they're like president of the United States. Doesn't have to be this president. It can be any president. So you sort of know what's more or less on their mind because the press keeps reporting it. And and you see it on television. You hear it. Uh, people discuss it. So you know if you're going to be running into somebody in that kind of position, uh, you, you sort of know what they look like already. Uh, you know what they sound like. You You, you know... Uh, what their voice is like, and you know what they're focused on. And, and so if you're going to meet somebody like that, what, what, you should, you, what you should do is take the biggest unresolved issue that they're facing and, and come up with uh, a few interesting solutions that, that, that basically haven't been out there uh, or that you, you haven't heard anybody else uh, was thinking about. So just to give you an example, it was sort of in the early 1990s, and I was invited to something at the White House, which was a big deal for me because I was like, you know, a person from no place. And, and you know, I had met the president once before uh, because uh, it was President Bush, because his son was in my dormitory. So I had met him at Parents' Day. I mean, it's just <laughs> like the oddity of things. So, so I knew I was going to see him because, you know, that's where the invitation came from. And um, so, so there was something going on, and I just thought about, you know, two or three ways to approach that uh, that issue. And you know, at, at that point, I was uh, separated, and so I had brought a brought a date uh, to the White House, and uh, you know, and, and so, so I saw the president, and we sort of went over in a corner for about ten minutes and discussed whatever this issue was, and then I. I, I later, you know, went back to my date. It was a little rude, but it was meant to be confidential conversation, and I barely knew her. Uh, and, um, you know, she said, what were you talking about all that time? And I said, well, you know, 
uh, there's something going on in the world, and I've thought about different ways of perhaps approaching that, and he was interested. Uh, and the answer is, of course he was interested. Why wouldn't he be interested? There didn't seem to be an easy outcome. And, and so, you know, conversations of that type, once somebody knows you're really thinking about what's good for them uh, and, and good for the situation, uh, it has nothing to do with, with me. I mean, it's really about being in service, uh, you know, to, to, to the situation. That, then people trust you and they'll tell you other things because they know your motives uh, are, are basically very pure. You're just trying to resolve a difficult situation and help somebody do it. So, so these types of things, um, you know, that's a planned situation. That's easy. There's sometimes you just come upon somebody and they start talking and, you know, that requires, you know, like different skills, you know, uh, you can ask them, what have you been working on lately? What are you thinking about? Uh, you, you, you can ask them, you know, has anything been particularly difficult? Any, any, you know, you can ask them. Most people, if, if they trust you for some reason, um, they'll tell you. And, and then you have to instantly go to work on it. And, um, you know, that's, that's not as good as having some advanced planning. But, but you know, uh, almost everything going on is, is like out there. And, and people who are involved with interesting situations, um, they're playing in, in, in the same ecosystem. They, they just have different roles uh, in, in the ecosystem. Uh, and, um, you know, you, you, you can do that with somebody who owns a pro football team uh, that loses all the time. We specialize in those in New York. And, and, you know, you, you, you already have analyzed why they're losing, right? Inevitably, it's because they don't have a great quarterback, they don't have a great coach, and they don't have a great general manager who knows how to hire the best talent. Those are the three reasons why a team fails, right? Because there are salary caps, so every team pays the same amount of money for all their players. So it's got to be those three positions. So if you're talking with somebody like that, inevitably, even though it's not structured, you, 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 you'll, you'll, you'll know how their team's doing and you'll know pretty much why. And if you start asking questions about that, they're, they're typically very happy to talk about it because they haven't solved that problem. In some cases, they don't even know that's the problem. It's pretty easy to see it. So, you know, I, I do stuff like that, which... I find is um, intuitive uh, as a process, uh, but, you know, le leads to really good results. Well, the funny thing is when you're smart, for smart people, it's hard to escape their own ego and, and the space of their own problems, which is what's required to think about other people's problems. It requires for you to let go of the fact that your your own problems are all important and then to talk about your, I think, uh, while it seems obvious, uh, and I think quite brilliant, it's just a difficult leap for many people, especially smart people, to empathize with, truly empathize with the problems of others. Well, I have a competitive advantage, which, <laughs> like which, <it. laughs> is, which is, I don't think I'm so smart. <laughs> 
Uh, so, so, good. so you know, it's not a problem for me. To- well, the truly smartest people I know say that exact same thing. Yeah, being humble is uh, is really useful competitive advantage, as you said. Uh, how do you stay humble? Well, I, I haven't changed much. Um, since? Since since I was um, in my mid-teens, you know, I was, I was raised um, partly in the city and partly in the suburbs. and. Um, and, you know, whatever the values uh, I had uh, at that time, uh, those are still my values. Uh, I call them like middle-class values. That's how I was raised. Um, and um, I, I've, I've never changed. Why would I? That, that's who I am. And, and so the accoutrement of, of um, you know, the rest of your life has got to be put on the same, you know, like solid foundation of who you are. Because if you start losing who you really are, who are you? Uh, so I, I've never had uh, the desire to be somebody else. I just do other things now that I, I wouldn't do as a, you know, sort of as a middle-class kid from Philadelphia. I mean, my life has morphed uh, on a certain level, but part of the strength of, of having uh, integrity of uh, personality is, is that you can remain in touch with um with 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 everybody who's comes from that kind of background and and you know even though i do some things that aren't like that you know in terms of people i'd meet or situations i'm in i always look at it through the same lens uh and that's very psychologically uh comfortable uh and doesn't require to me to make any real adjustments in my life and i just keep plowing ahead there's a lot of activity and progress in recent years around effective altruism. It's I wanted to bring this topic with you because it's an interesting one from your perspective. Uh, you can put it in any kind of terms, but it's philanthropy that focuses on maximizing impact. How do you see the goal of philanthropy, both from a personal motivation perspective and a societal big picture impact perspective? Yeah. I. I don't think about philanthropy the way you would expect me to, okay? I, I, I look at, you know, sort of uh, solving uh, big issues, addressing big issues, uh, starting new organizations to do it, uh, much like we do in our business. You know, we keep growing our business, not by taking the original thing and making it larger, but continually seeing new things and, and, and building those. And, and, you know, sort of marshalling financial resources, human resources. And, and in our case, because we're in the investment business, we find something new that looks like it's going to be terrific. And, and we do that, and it works out really well. All I do in what you would call philanthropy is, is look at other opportunities to help society. Um, and I end up starting something new, marshalling people, marshalling a lot of money. And, and then at the end of that kind of creative process, so somebody typically asks me to write a check. I, I don't wake up and say, how can I like give large amounts of money away? I, I look at issues that are important uh, for people. Uh, in, in some cases, I, I do smaller things because it's important to a person. Uh, and, and, you know, I have, you know, sort of, I, I can relate to that person. There's some unfairness 
that's happened to them. And so I'll, I'll, in situations like that, I'd give money anonymously and help them out. And, you know, that, 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 that's, it's, it, it's like a miniature version of addressing something really big. So, you know, at MIT, um, uh, I, I've done a big thing, uh, you know, helping to start this uh, new school of computing. And, and I did that because, you know, I, I saw that, that, you know, there's sort of like a global race on uh, in AI, quantum, and other major technologies. And I, I thought that, um, that the U.S. could use more enhancement uh, from a competitive uh, perspective. And I also, because I get to China a lot and I travel around a lot compared to a regular person, um, you know, I, I can see the need to have control of, of these types of technologies so when they're introduced, we don't create a mess like we did with the internet uh, and, and with social media, uh, unintended consequence, um, you know, that's creating all kinds of issues and freedom of speech and the functioning of liberal democracies. So with, with AI, it was pretty clear that there was enormous difference of views uh, around the world by the relatively few practitioners in the world who really knew what was going on. And uh, by accident, I knew a bunch of these people, uh, you know, who were like big famous people. Uh, and I could talk to them and say, why do you think this is a force for bad? And someone else, why do you feel this is a force for good? And, and how do we move forward with the technology but the same, by the same time, make sure that whatever is potentially, you know, sort of on the bad side of this technology with, you know, for example, disruption of workforces and things like that, that could hap happen much faster than the Industrial Revolution. Uh, what do we do about that? And how do we keep that under control so that the really good things about these technologies, which will be great things, not good things, uh, are allowed to happen. So, so to me, uh, you know, this this was one of the great issues uh, facing society. The number of people who were aware of it were very small. I just accidentally got sucked into it, and and as soon as I saw it, I went, "Oh my God, <laughs> this is mega!" Yeah. Uh, uh, both on a competitive basis globally, uh, but but also in terms of protecting. Uh, society and benefiting society. So, so, so that's how I got involved. And at the end, you know, sort of the right thing that we figured out was, you know, sort of double MIT's uh, computer science faculty and, and, and basically create the first AI enabled uh, university in the world. Uh, and, you know, in effect, be an example, uh, a beacon to the rest of the research community around the world academically and, and, and create you know, a much more um, robust uh, U.S. Uh, situation, competitive situation among universities, uh, because if if MIT was going to raise a lot of money and double its faculty, well, you could bet that you know, and a number of other universities were going to do the same thing. At the end of it, it would be great for knowledge creation. You know, great for the United States, great for the world. Uh, and so I like to do things that I think are really positive uh, things that other people aren't acting on, that I, I see 
for whatever the reason. First, it's just people I meet and what they say, and I can recognize when something really profound is about to happen or needs to. And I do it, and at the end of the at the end of the situation, somebody says, "Can, can you write a, a check to help us?" And then the answer is sure. I mean, because if I don't, the vision won't happen. But it's the vision of whatever I do that is compelling. And the, essentially, I love that idea of whether it's small at the individual level or really big, like the the gift to MIT to launch the College of Computing. It's it's it starts with a vision, and it, it you see philanthropy as um, the biggest impact you can have is by launching something new, right? especially on an issue that others aren't really addressing. And I, and I also love the notion, and you're absolutely right, that there's other universities, uh, Stanford, CMU, I'm looking at you, that would essentially, you're the seed will, will, will uh, create other, it, it'll, it'll have a ripple effect that potentially might help US be a leader or continue to be a leader in AI, this uh, potentially very transformative uh, research direction. Just to linger on that point a little bit, what is your hope long-term for the impact the college here at MIT might have in the next five, 10, even 20, or let's get crazy, 30, 50 years? Well, it's very difficult to predict the future when you're dealing with knowledge production yes. and creativity. Um, you know, MIT has obviously um, some unique aspects, uh, you know, globally. And, you know, there's four big uh, sort of academic surveys. Um, I forget whether it was QS, uh, there's the Times uh, in London, you know, the US News and whatever. And one of these recently, MIT, was ranked number one in the world, yeah. right? So, so leave aside whether you're number three somewhere else, in the great sweep of humanity, this is pretty amazing, yeah. right? So, so you have a really um, remarkable aggregation of, of human talent uh, here. And um, where it goes, uh, it's hard to tell. You have to be a scientist to have the right feel. Um, but but what's, what's important is you, you have a critical mass uh, of people. And I, I think it breaks into two buckets. Uh, one is scientific advancement. Uh, and, and if the new college can uh, help, you know, sort of either uh, serve as a convening uh, force within the university um, or, or, or help sort of coordination and communication among people, uh, th that's a good thing, um, absolute good thing. The second thing is, is in the AI ethics area, uh, which uh, is, is, is uh, in a way, equally important because if if the science side creates blowback uh so so that science is 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 um you know uh, uh, a bit crippled in terms of going forward because society's reaction to to knowledge advancement in this field becomes really hostile uh, th then you've sort of lost the game in terms of scientific progress and innovation. And, and so the AI ethics piece is super important because 
you know, uh, in, in, a, in a perfect world, uh, MIT would, would serve as a global convener. Uh, because what you need is, is you need the, the research universities, you, you need the companies uh, that are driving AI and quantum uh, work. Uh, you need governments who will ultimately be regulating certain elements of this. Uh, and you also need the media uh, to be knowledgeable and trained so, so, so we don't get um, sort of um, overreactions to, to one situation, which then goes viral uh, and it ends up shutting down avenues that are perfectly fine you know, to, to be walking down or running down that avenue. Uh, but, but if enough uh, uh, discordant uh, information, not even correct necessarily, uh, you know, sort of gets, um, uh, you know, sort of, sort of gets pushed around society, then you can end up with a really hostile regulatory environment and other things. So you have four drivers that, that have to be um, sort of um, integrated. Uh, and, and so uh, if, if, if the new school of computing uh, can be really helpful in that regard, uh, then that's a real service uh, to science and it's a service to MIT. So, so that's, that's why I wanted to get involved for both areas. And the hope is for me, for others, for everyone, for the world, is uh, for this particular college of computing to be a beacon and a connector for the for yes. for these for these ideas. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I I, I think uh, MIT is perfectly uh, positioned uh, uh, to do that. So you've mentioned the media, social media, the internet as uh, this complex network of communication with uh, with flaws perhaps perhaps you can speak to them but it you know I personally think that science and technology uh, has its flaws but ultimately is uh, one sexy exciting it's the way for us to explore and understand the mysteries of our world and two, most perhaps more importantly for some people, it's a huge way to, a really powerful way to grow the economy, to improve the quality of life for everyone. So how do we get, how do you see uh, the media, social media, the internet as a society having, uh, a, you know, healthy discourse about science? First of all, one that's factual and two, one that's, finds science exciting, that invests in science, that pushes it forward, especially in this science fiction, fear-filled field of artificial intelligence? Well, I think that's a little above my pay grade because um, you know, trying to control social media to make it do what you want to do sure. uh, appears to be beyond almost anybody's control. And, and the technology is being used uh, to create what I call the tyranny of the minorities. Okay, a minority is defined as, you know, two or three people on a street corner. Doesn't matter what they look like, uh, doesn't matter where they came from, they're united uh, by uh, that uh, one issue that they care about. And, and their job is to, uh, 
enforce their views uh, on the world. And, you know, uh, in the political world, people just are manufacturing uh, truth uh, and, and they throw it all over and it affects all of us. Uh, and, um, you know, sometimes people are just hired to, to do that. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, and you think it's one person, it's really, you know, just sort of a front, you know, for a particular point of view. Uh, and this has become uh, exceptionally disruptive uh, for uh, society, and it's dangerous. And it's undercutting, you know, the ability of liberal democracies to function. Uh, and I don't know how to get a grip on this. And I was really surprised. Um, when we, um, you know, was up here for the announcement uh, last uh, uh, spring uh, of the College of Com Computing, uh, and they had all these famous scientists, some of whom were involved with the invention okay. uh, uh, of the internet, and almost every one of them got up and said, "I think I made a mistake." <laughs> uh, I, and as a non-scientist, I never thought I'd hear anyone say that. And, and what they said is, um, more or less, to make it simple, uh, we thought this would be really cool, uh, inventing the internet. We could connect everyone in the world. Uh, we can move knowledge around. It was instantaneous. It's a really amazing thing. He said, I don't know that there was anyone who ever thought about social media coming out of that and the actual consequences for people's lives. Uh, you know, so there's always some um, uh, some younger person, I just saw one of these yesterday, it's reported on the national news who killed himself when people use social media uh, to, to basically, you know, sort of ridicule him or something of that type. This is dead. Um, this is dangerous. Uh, and, um, you know, so, so I, I, I don't have a, a solution for that other and going forward, you, you can't end up with this type of outcome using AI. To make this kind of mistake twice is unforgivable. So, so interestingly, at least in the West uh, and, and parts of China, uh, people are quite sympathetic uh, to, to, you know, sort of the whole concept of AI ethics and what gets introduced when and, and cooperation within your own country, within your own industry, uh, as well as globally, uh, to, to make sure that the technology is a force for good. On that really interesting topic, since 2007, you've had a relationship with senior le leadership with a lot of people in China and an interest in understanding modern China, their culture, their world. Much like with Russia, I'm from Russia originally, Americans are told a very narrow, one-sided story about China uh, that I'm sure misses a lot of fascinating complexity, both positive and negative. What lessons about Chinese culture, its ideas as a nation, its future, do you think Americans should know about, deliberate on, think about? Well, it's it's sort of a wide question that you're you're asking about. Uh, you know, China's a pretty unusual place. Uh, first, it's it's huge. Uh, you know, you got, it's physically huge. It's got a billion three people. 
<laughs> and the, the character of the people isn't as well understood uh, in the United States. Um, uh, Chinese um, people are amazingly energetic. Uh, if, if you're one of a billion three people, one of the things you gotta be focused on is how do you make your way uh, you know, through a crowd uh, of, of a billion, 2.99999 other people. Another uh, word for that is competitive. Yes, they, they are individually highly energetic, highly focused, always looking for some opportunity uh, for themselves um, because they need to, uh, because there, there's an enormous amount of just literally people around. And, and so, you, you know, what I've found uh, is uh, they'll, they'll try and find a way to win uh, for themselves. Uh, and their country is complicated because it, it basically doesn't have the same kind of functional laws uh, that we do uh, in, in the United States and the West. And, and um, the country is controlled really uh, through a, a web of relationships you have with other people uh, and the relationships that those other people have with other people. So it's an incredibly dynamic uh, uh, culture where if, if somebody knocks somebody up on the top who's three levels above you and is in effect protecting you, then then you know you're you're like a you know sort of a floating, molecule there, uh, you know, without tethering, uh, except the one or two layers above you, but that's going to get affected. So it's a very dynamic system and getting people to change is not that easy because if there aren't really functioning laws, it's only the relationships that everybody has. And, and so when you decide to make a major change and you sign up for it, something is changing in your life there won't necessarily be all the same people on your team. Uh, and that's a very high risk enterprise. So when you're dealing with with China, it's important to know almost what everybody's relationship is with somebody. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you suggest doing something differently, you, you, you line up these forces in the West, it's usually you talk to a person and they figure out what's good for them. Uh, it's a lot easier. And, and in that sense, in a funny way, it's easier to make change uh, in the West, just the opposite of what people think. Um, but, but once the Chinese system adjusts to something that's new, everybody's on the team. It's hard to change them, but once they're changed, they are incredibly focused in a way that it's hard for the West uh, to do in a more individualistic uh, culture. So, so there are all kinds of fascinating things. Um, uh, you know, um, I, uh, one thing that might interest, uh, you know, the people who are listening, we're more technologically based than some other group. Um, that was with the, one of the top people in uh, the government um, a few weeks ago, and he was telling me that, that uh, every school child in... Um, uh, in China is is going to be uh, uh, taught computer science. Now imagine, hundred percent of these children. This is such a large 
number of human beings. Now, that doesn't mean that every one of them will be good at computer science, but if it's sort of like in the West, if it's like math or English, everybody's gonna take it. Not everybody's great at English, they don't write books, they don't write poetry, and not everybody's good at math, you know, somebody like myself. I sort of evolved to the third grade and I'm still doing flashcards. Uh, you know, I didn't make it further in math. Uh, but imagine everybody in their society is gonna be involved with computer science. I just even pause on that. I, I think computer science involves at the basic beginner level programming and the idea that everybody in the society would have some ability to program a computer is incredible. Uh, for me, it's incredibly exciting. And um, I think that should give United States pause and uh, consider what, uh, talking about sort of philanthropy and launching things, there's nothing like launching, sort of investing in young the youth, the education system, because that's where everything launches. Yes, well, we've got a complicated system because we have over 3,000 school districts around the country. Uh, China doesn't worry about that as a concept. They make a decision at the very top of the, the government that that's what they want to have happen, and that is what will happen. And uh, we're really handicapped uh, by this distributed you know, power. Uh, in the education area, although some people involved with that area will think it's uh, it's great, uh, but you know you you would know better than I do uh, what percent of American children have computer science uh, uh, exposure. M my guess, no knowledge, uh, would be five percent or less. Uh, and if we're going to be going into a world. Where, where the other major economic uh, power, uh, sort of like ourselves, is, is, is got like 100%, and we got five, and, and the whole computer science area uh, is the future, um, then, then we're purposely, or accidentally actually, handicapping ourselves, and our system doesn't allow us uh, to adjust quickly uh, to that. So. You know, issues like this, uh, I, I, I find fascinating. Uh, and, you know, if you're lucky enough to go to other countries, uh, which, which I do, um, and you learn what they're thinking, then it informs what, what we ought to be doing in, in, in the United States. So the current administration, Donald Trump, has released the, an executive order on artificial intelligence. Not sure if you're familiar with it in 2019. Uh, looking several years ahead, uh, how does America sort of, we've mentioned in terms of uh, the big impact, we hope uh, your in investment in MIT will have a ripple effect, but from a federal perspective, from a government perspective, uh, how does America establish with respect to China leadership in the world at the top for research and development in AI? Yeah, I, I think um, that you have to get the federal government in the game uh, in a big way. Uh, and that um, this leap forward uh, technologically, uh, which is gonna happen with or without us, 
uh, you know, really should be with us. Uh, and, and it's an opportunity, in effect, uh, for another moonshot uh, kind of mobilization uh, by uh, the United States. Uh, I think uh, the appetite uh, actually is there uh, to do that. Uh, at the moment, uh, what's getting in the way is the kind of poisonous uh, politics we have. Uh, but but if you go below uh, the lack of uh, cooperation, which is, is almost the defining element of American democracy right now in the Congress, if you talk to individual members, they get it, and they would like to do something. Another part of the issue is we're running huge deficits. We're running trillion dollar plus deficits. So how much money do you need for this um, initiative? Where does it come from? Who's prepared to stand up for it? Uh, because if it, if it involves taking away resources from another area, uh, our political system is, is not real flexible uh, to do that. Uh, if you're creating um, th th this kind of initiative, um, which we need, where does the money come from? Uh, and, and trying to get money when you've got trillion-dollar deficits, in, in a way, it could be easy. What's the difference of a trillion and a trillion a little more? Uh, but, but, you know, it's, it's hard with the mechanisms uh, of Congress. But what, what's, what's really important is uh, th th this is not an issue uh, that is unknown and it's viewed as a very important issue. Uh, and there's almost no one in the Congress, when you sit down and explain what's going on, who doesn't say, we, we've got to do something. Let me ask the impossible question. So if, uh, you didn't endorse Donald Trump, but after he was elected, you have given him advice, uh, which, which seems to me a great thing to do, no matter who the president is, to contribute, positively contribute to this nation by giving advice. And yet you've received a lot of criticism for this. So on the previous topic of science and technology and government, how do we have a healthy discourse, uh, ad give advice, get excited, a conversation with the government about science and technology without it becoming politicized? Well, it's very interesting. Um, so uh, w when I was young, uh, before there was a moonshot, uh, we had a president uh, named John F. Kennedy from Massachusetts here. And in his inaugural address as president, uh, he asked not what your country can do for you, uh, but what you can do for your country. Now, we, we had a generation of people, my age, basically people, who grew up uh, with that credo. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes you don't need to innovate. Uh, you can go back to basic principles, and that's a good basic principle. Uh, what, what, can, what can we do? Um, you know, Americans have GDP per capita of around $60,000. Uh, you know, not every, it's not equally distributed, but it's big. Uh, and, you know, um, people have, I think, an obligation uh, to help 
their country. And I do that. And apparently I take some grief for from some people, you know, who, who, who um, project on me things I don't even vaguely believe. Uh, but, but I'm like quite simple. Uh, you know, I tried to help the previous president, uh, President Obama. He was a good guy. Uh, and he was a different party. And I tried to help President Bush. And he's a different party. And, you know, uh, I, 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 I sort of don't care that much uh, about what the parties are. I care about, even though I'm a big donor for the Republicans, but it's, it's, what motivates me is what are the problems we're facing? And can I help people get to, you know, sort of a good outcome that, that'll stand any test? Uh, but we live in a world now where, you know, sort of the filters and uh, the, the hostility is, is so unbelievable. Uh, you know, in the 1960s, when I went to school uh, in the university, I went to Yale, and we had like, like so much stuff going on. Uh, we had a war called the Vietnam War. We had, you know, sort of black power starting. And, and uh, you know, we had a sexual revolution with the birth control pill. Uh, and, um, you know, um, there was one other major thing going on. And, right, the drug revolution. There hasn't been a generation that had more stuff going on in a four-year period than my uh, era. Yet, there wasn't this kind of instant hostility if you believed something different. Everybody lived together and, and you know, respected uh, the other person. And, and I think that you know, this type of change needs to happen. And it's got to happen uh, from the leadership of, of our major institutions. And I, I don't think that, that leaders can be bullied uh, by people who are against, you know, sort of the classical version of free speech and letting open expression and yes. inquiry. That's what universities are for. Uh, among other things, uh, Socratic methods. And uh, so, so I, I have, um, uh, in, in, in the midst of this like onslaught uh, of oddness, uh, I, I, I believe in still the basic principles and we're gonna have to find a way to get back to that. And that, that doesn't start with the people, uh, you know, sort of in the middle to the bottom who are using, you know, these kinds of screens to to shout people down and, and create an uncooperative environment. It's got to be done uh, at the top with core principles that are articulated. Uh, and uh, ironically, um, if people don't sign on to these kind of core cr principles where people are equal and and you know, speech can be heard, and you know you don't have these enormous shout down biases subtly or or out loud. Then they don't belong at those institutions. They're they're violating the core principles, and and um, 
you know, that, that's how you end up making change. Uh, and, but you have to have courageous people uh, who are willing to lay that out for the benefit of not just their institutions, but for society uh, as a whole. So I, I, I believe that will happen, um, but it needs the commitment uh, of, of, of senior people to make it happen. Courage, and I think for such great leaders, great universities, there's a huge hunger for it. So I, I'm too very optimistic that, that it will come. I'm now personally taking a step into building a startup, first time, hoping to change the world, of course. Uh, there are thousands, maybe more, maybe millions of other first-time entrepreneurs like me. What advice? You've gone through this process. You've talked about the suffering, the emotional turmoil it all might entail. What advice do you have for those people taking that step? I, I'd say it's a rough ride. Uh, and you have to be psychologically prepared for things going wrong with frequency. You have to be prepared uh, to be put in situations where you're being asked to solve problems you didn't even know those problems existed. You know, for example, renting space. It's, it's not really a problem unless you've never done it. You have no idea what a lease looks like, right? You don't even know the relevant rent and, you know, in a market. So everything is new. Everything has to be learned. What, what you realize is that it's good to have other people with you who've had some experience in areas where you don't know what you're doing. Unfortunately, uh, an entrepreneur starting doesn't know much of anything, so everything is, is something new. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, I think it's important not to be alone uh, because it's sort of overwhelming uh, and you need somebody to talk to uh, other than uh, a spouse or a loved one uh, because even they get bored with your problems. Uh, and and so, you know, getting a group, you know, if you look at Alibaba, uh, you know, Jack Ma was telling me they went, they, they basically were like at financial death's door at least twice. Uh, and you know, the fact that there, it wasn't just Jack. I mean, people think it is because of, you know, he became the, you know, the sort of public face and the driver. Uh, but but a group of people uh, who can give advice, share situations to talk about, uh, that's really important. And that's not just referring to the small details like renting space. No. It's also the psychological yes. burden. Yeah, and, you know, because most entrepreneurs at some point question what they're doing because it's not going so well or they're screwing it up and they don't know how to unscrew it up uh, because we're all learning uh, and it's hard to be learning you know when there are like 25 variables going on if you you know if you're missing four big ones you can really make a mess uh, and, and so the ability to to in effect have either an outsider uh, who's really smart that you can rely on for certain type of things, uh, or other people who are working with you on a daily basis. Um, it's most people who haven't had experience uh, believe in the myth of the one person, one great person, you know, makes outcomes. Uh, 
creates outcomes that are positive. Most of us, it's not like that. If you look back over a lot of the big successful tech uh, companies, it's not typically one person. It you know it's and you will know these stories better than I do because uh, it's your world, not mine. But even I know that almost every one of them had two people. I mean, if you look at Google, you know that that's what they had, and 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 that was the same at Microsoft at the beginning, and you know um, it was the same at Apple. It you know people have different skills, and and they need to play off of uh, other people. So so um, you know the the advice that, that that I would give you is make sure you understand that, so you don't head off in some direction as a lone wolf. Uh, and find that either you can't invent all the solutions um, or you make bad decisions on certain types of things. This is a team sport. Entrepreneur means you're alone, in effect. And that's the myth. Uh, but it's mostly a myth. Yeah, I think, and you talk about this in your book, and I could talk to you about it forever, the the harshly self-critical aspect to your personality and uh, to mine as well in the face of failure. It's a powerful tool, but it's also a burden uh, that's that's very interesting, uh, very interesting to uh, walk that line. But let me ask on the, in terms of people around you, in terms of friends, in, in the bigger picture of your own life, where do you put the value of love, family, friendship in the big picture journey? of your life? Well, ultimately all journeys are alone. Um, it's great to have support. Um, and, you know, um, when you, 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 you go forward and say, your job is to make something work and that's your number one priority, um, and, and you're gonna work at it to make it work, you know, it's like superhuman effort. People don't um, become successful as part-time workers. It doesn't work that way. Uh, and if you're prepared to make that 100 to 120% uh, effort, you're, you're going you're gonna to need support. And, and you're going to have to have people involved with your life who understand that that's really part of your life. Uh, sometimes you you're involved with somebody and you know, they don't really understand that. And that's a source of, you know, sort of conflict and difficulty. But if, you, if you're if you involved with the right people, uh, you know, whether it's a you know, sort of dating relationship or, um, you know, sort of, a, you know, spousal relationship, um, you know, you, you have to involve them uh, in your life, uh, but not burden them hmm. with with every you know, sort of minor triumph or mistake. They they actually get bored with it after a while. And and so you have to set up different types of ecosystems. You, you have your home life, you have your love life, uh, you have children, and, and that's like the enduring part of what you do. And then on the other side, you, you've got the, you know, sort of unpredictable nature uh, of, um, of, of, of this type of work. What, what I say to people at my firm who were younger, usually, um, 
well, everybody's younger, but but um, you know, people who are of an age where where, where you know they they're just having their first child, uh, or maybe they have two children, that it's important um, to to make sure they go away uh, with their spouse uh, uh, at least once every two months. It's just some lovely place where there are no children, no issues. Uh, sometimes once a month, if if they're, you know, sort of energetic and clever, uh, and that um, escape the craziness of it all. Yeah, and 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 reaffirm uh, your your values as a couple, uh, and you have to have fun. If you don't have fun with the person you're with. Uh, and all you're doing is dealing with issues, then then that gets pretty old. And, and so you have to protect the fun element uh, of your life together. And the way to do that isn't by hanging around the house and, and dealing with, you know, sort of more problems. It, you have to get away and, and reinforce and reinvigorate uh, your relationship. And whenever I tell one of our younger people about that, they sort of look at me and they're, it's like the scales are falling off of their eyes and they're saying, geez, you know, I hadn't thought about that. You know, I'm so enmeshed in all these things, but that's a great idea. And that's something as an entrepreneur, you, you also have to do. Uh, you, you just can't let relationships slip because you're half overwhelmed. Beautifully put. And I think there's no better place to end it. Steve, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was an honor to talk to you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Steven Schwartzman. And thank you to our sponsors, ExpressVPN and Masterclass. Please consider supporting the podcast by signing up to Masterclass at masterclass.com slash Lex and getting ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash LexPod. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe on YouTube, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, support it on Patreon, or simply connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. And now, let me leave you with some words from Steven Schwartzman's book, What It Takes. It's as hard to start and run a small business as it is to start a big one. You will suffer the same toll financially and psychologically as you bludgeon it into existence. It's hard to raise the money and to find the right people. So if you're going to dedicate your life to a business, which is the only way it will ever work, you should choose one with the potential to be huge. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.